Once again, good morning. Can I return with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 17? This morning we're going to look at the second part of a very uplifting message we started called Victory Over the Demonic. So, you know, depending on how you look at it, it's uplifting. Um, But let's pick it up in Matthew 17, starting in verse 14 where we read, when they had come to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? So Jesus said to them, Because of your unbelief. For assuredly I say to you, If you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. And we've really just broken this section down into two main points. The power of Satan to enslave from verses 14 to 16. And then the power of Jesus to set free, verses 17 to 21. Now, last week we looked at the first point, the power of Satan to enslave. We saw the desperate father. Uh, who had gone everywhere looking to get help for his son, but no one could help him. We saw the demon-possessed boy uh, and what that was all about. It says he was an epileptic, but uh, he was actually demon-possessed. The Greek word for epileptic there just means moonstruck. Uh, In that culture, they believed that if you spent too much time out at night and the moon shone in your face, you would become a lunatic, crazy. We know the boy wasn't crazy. He had a demon. And we see the way the devil had taken control of his life and various things. He tried to kill himself constantly and was in severe pain and would cry out. It was horrible what this kid was going through. So you can imagine as a parent what that would be like, right? And then we came to the power of Jesus to set free. We saw the dynamic Savior, Jesus Christ, stepping in when he came down from the mountain to cast the demon out of this boy. And you can study this uh, We went over this last week, so get the CD from last week, and we studied all this in detail. After Jesus had uh, delivered this boy from this demon, his disciples came to him privately in verse 19 and said to him, Why could we not cast it out? Now, in response to their question, Jesus gives a couple of dynamic principles that we all need to understand uh, in how we might have continued victory over the devil, over his influence, over his power. Which, by the way, doesn't stop. Once we get saved, he continues to hassle. In fact, he ratchets up his attacks. Because if he can silence us, if he can condemn you to the point where you just walk away from Jesus because you feel so, uh, so worthless and condemned over every time you blow it, then he can neutralize your effectiveness, shut you up, and at least you won't be a threat to his kingdom. But before we look at uh, the principles Jesus gives here in Matthew 17 for victory over the devil... Uh, Let's turn, first of all, to Acts 19. I want to show you another passage that we can pick up a couple of principles from. 
Acts 19, starting with verse 11. First of all, it starts with Paul's ministry and how God worked unusual miracles by the hand of Paul. So that even handkerchiefs, that would be headbands in the Greek, or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call on the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by Jesus, whom Paul preaches. Also there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. And the evil spirit, I love this, answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you guys, basically? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowering them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became uh, known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burnt them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. There's a couple of things I want to point out about spiritual victory over the devil that comes out of this passage. The first one, very basic, but that's where we have to start. And that is that there is only victory in one name. And that is the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you don't have to turn to these, but I'll let you write down the references if you want. Colossians 2.15 Having disarmed principalities and powers, speaking of what Jesus did in the cross, He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Who triumphed over the devil and his demons? Jesus did. We read in Matthew 12, verses 28 and 29. Jesus said, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. Jesus bound the strong man, Satan, at the cross. When Jesus died, and especially when he rose again, he vanquished principalities and powers. And now he is a stronger man than the strong man, Satan. Only Jesus can bind the strong man, which allows us now to go forward in the name of Jesus to take territory from the devil for the glory of God. That's what Jesus meant when he said, against my church, the gates of hell will not prevail. All because of what Jesus did. But I want you to notice that only those who made a, who make a commitment to him, to Jesus Christ, have then been given the authority to use his name against the devil, his his power. You remember in Luke chapter 10, verse 19, Jesus said, Behold, I give you the authority, talking to his disciples and to all of us who are his disciples. I give you, the church, the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Jesus won the victory and he's turning over the authority of that victory in his name to be used against the devil for the glory of God. And of course, we all remember how Mark's gospel ends in chapter 16, starting on verse 15. Jesus said to them, to his disciples, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. 
He who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Now listen. Those who have not received the Lord Jesus Christ and therefore are not connected to Him by virtue of genuine faith, saving faith, and the new birth, listen to me, they are not authorized to use His name against the devil, to use His power. We see uh, seven guys, seven brothers tried here, right? They, They were exorcists. And they heard that in the name of Jesus... Uh, demons and evil spirits were being cast out of people. Now, the mindset back then was that there were phrases that carried power in the spirit realm. That's what an incantation or a hex is all about. These little phrases that seem to carry special power to energize or to work in the spirit realm. So they figure, well, in Jesus' name, that must be a powerful incantation. Let's try it. Okay? So they found a guy who was really demon-possessed. And they say, we commend you, you know, in Jesus' name, whom Paul preaches, come out of the man. And I love the demon's response. Jesus I know, Paul I know, who are you guys? Jumped on these guys and beat the snot out of them. <laughs> they ran out of the house naked and wounded. I would have loved to have seen that. Not because they were naked, just simply because, you know, <laughs> yeah, I'll leave it there. Um, but the power over the devil, doesn't belong to us, it belongs to Jesus. It's all about His power. It's all about His victory. And we simply have been given the authority by Him to use His name as His people against the power of the devil. Let me put it this way. Give me a little example. I once saw a guy, I once saw a guy stop a semi-tractor trailer with one arm. He held it up and said, stop in the name of the law. Of course, he was wearing a badge, all right? And the idea is that that man had no power, no authority in and of himself to command anyone to do anything. But because the county or the city that he worked for had invested in him, their authority, now he was able, in the name of the law, to, you know, have the authority and power to do the things that he was commissioned to do. We have no power in and of ourselves. Our name, the devil could care less about Phil Ballmeyer, okay? He is not afraid of me at all. But when I come to him in Jesus' name, that's the name he fears. And that is the name he has given to us, Jesus Christ, to use against principalities and powers. Look, We have been promised victory. It's ours. It's not something we work towards. It's something we're working from. God has given us victory. He's promised us victory over the devil and his demons because Jesus has already won the victory. There is only victory in one name. That's Jesus. Number two from this passage, we see the power for victory will be hindered if you open the door to evil things in your life. We read in verse 17, This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on all, on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. 
And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. I want you to notice the tense of the verbs in verse 18. It actually reads like this. The people kept coming, kept confessing, kept telling. These were Christians now who had given their hearts to Christ but did not break away completely from the old life. With some of them, it didn't happen immediately, but as time went on, more and more kept confessing, kept telling, kept coming, and breaking free of the old life. What am I saying? I am saying that just because a person receives Christ doesn't mean they automatically separate themselves from the old life. That's something that they need to do consciously, willfully. That's called sanctification. And a lot of Christians, they get saved, but they still want to kind of fool around with the world. And these folks were doing the same thing, and it really didn't stop until what? Verse 17, the fear of the Lord came upon them. What is it going to take for the church in America to have the fear of God come upon us where we make a clean break with all the junk of the world that's watering down our witness, that's sapping away the spiritual power that God has given us for victory, that's causing our light to be dim. What's it going to take for the church in America to have the fear of God put in our hearts that we would get on our knees and make a clean break with whatever it is that is being used by the devil to keep us really from being effective? I don't know what it is, but I know what God said in Second Chronicles 7.14. You all know it. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, seek my face, and pray and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear their prayer from heaven, forgive their sins, and heal their land. We have to be humble. I don't know what it's going to take. But it wasn't until the fear of God fell upon them that they purged their homes of all their magic, occult paraphernalia, stopped their involvement with all these demonic practices. And once they did that, look at what verse 20 says. And then the word of the Lord grew mightily, and prevailed. See, something was holding them back. Something was hindering the power of God's Word. God's Word is powerful. But you know what? If it's poured into a dirty receptacle or a blocked channel, it's not going to flow in power. And I'll tell you what, that's what it is. It's not that God's Word isn't powerful. It's not that it's not mighty to save. It's just that God's people are allowing other things to choke out the effectiveness of God's Word. Primarily because we're not living the lives God wants us to live, and therefore the world sees that and says, you're just hypocrites. Why should I listen to what you're saying? It all started with the fear of the Lord. Solomon said the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. And when the fear of God fell on these people, it prompted these Christians to renounce any connection with the demonic that they were still kind of fooling around with. They renounced the demonic by confessing and burning their books of magic and they didn't regard how much those things were worth. They didn't try to sell them on eBay or Craigslist. You know, hey, Ephesus was a occult center. They could have got big money. It says here, 50,000 pieces of silver. Do you realize that's a year's wage for 150 average workers back then? That's a lot of money. They could have, they could have justified it and said, well, we'll sell it and give the money to the church. Right? No. God doesn't need our money to do His work. 
And He certainly doesn't want us purging our house of evil and selling it to others who then fill their house with that evil. God wants us to make a clean break from the world. And Christians today need to do the same thing as they did in Ephesus back then. We need to go through our houses. And you say, this sounds a little bit, you know, you think, well, come on now. You know, I mean, you know, do you really think that those objects and things uh, have some spiritual connection to, to the spirit realm and that's how Satan is attacking Christians? Look it. It's been known for many, many centuries that uh, spirits attach themselves to objects. That's the whole idea behind uh, the amulets and uh, the crystal balls and even the black cats which witches use as uh, a medium for for spirits to, to work through. They realize, people in the occult do that, there are such things as objects that demonic entities, or they call them spirits, can attach themselves to. And if you bring them into your homes, you're opening a door for the devil to use those very things to get a foothold. Especially if they're things that your kids watch or video games they play that are blatantly demonic. We talked about this a little bit last week. you got to go through your houses and get rid of the occult junk, the Twilight books if they're there, the Twilight DVDs, vampires and werewolves and, and uh, you know, uh, Harry Potter stuff, if you still got any of that, if... Hopefully nobody in this church does. But, you know, uh, get rid of the junk. Get rid of the, the you know, the statues and uh, the games, Dungeons and Dragons and Ouija boards. I mean, there are Christians who have that stuff in their home still. And you know what? I'm, I'm a firm believer that those things are demonic in nature. And you know what? How can your house be a truly holy place if you've uh, allowed those things to be in there somewhere? You know, when I first got saved last millennium but when i first got saved uh you know and i'm showing my age a little bit um i had a lot of albums i don't know if young people have ever seen an album maybe in a museum somewhere but i had uh, albums rock albums you know a lot of dark stuff you know and god believed it on my heart right away and of course some of those albums i don't want to get into this you've heard of the backward masking at our youth group many many years ago we had uh, we talked to the kids about this, and we had one of the guys bring in a Black Sabbath album, and uh, we had a I had a turntable back then, and we put it on, and I began to spin the album backwards, and you would not believe what we heard. We heard Satan, 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 six, six, six. I mean, as clear as a bell. Uh, from what I understand, that's impossible to do. Therefore, there was some kind of a demonic element with regard. And I told you last week, how many of these performers have actually sold their souls to the devil to be famous? So I just took this up and just trashed it. All of it. Just trashed it. I could have made good money uh, selling it. I just trashed it. I didn't want to give any of that junk to anybody else. Okay? But they purged their houses of these things. And then God's word came alive. Their families, their homes were revived. Their church revived. Look, what price are you willing to pay? What price are you willing to pay to be revived in your walk with God and in your hunger for His Word? What do you need to purge from your life? What do you need to turn away from? What maybe relationship do you need to terminate before you begin to experience the power of God in your life once again? So often we are defeated. Guys, listen to me. Not because the Lord hasn't given us the power of His Spirit 
to have victory. That because we're still fooling around with the things of the world that are demonic, defiling, and therefore defeating. And the best defense against the devil is a good, strong offense. Go in through your house, as I said, and get rid of the devil's junk, if any of it still remains. And fill your home and your mind with God's word. Getting back to our passage this morning, the disciples came to Jesus after he cast this demon out. They said, well, why couldn't we do it? Because he had given them earlier, I think it was in chapter 12, the, the power to cast out demons. So now they're wondering, well, why can't we do it? All right, we've done it before. Why can't we do it now? I'll give you two reasons. He does mention their unbelief. But why did they have unbelief? Well, let me just say this, all right? I think part of the problem was that while they were up on top of the mountain, Jesus, uh, Peter, James, and John, and the other disciples were there at the base of the mount, that when the Father brought this demon-possessed boy to these disciples, you know, the devil doesn't want his demons cast out of people. And I believe what happened was this demon manifested itself in such a horrific way I mean, it's such a horrible way. Uh, maybe the kid fell on the ground and started foaming at the mouth, contorting his face. Maybe voices started coming out that were just hideous sounding. And the disciples looked at what was going on in the, right in front of them, and it took their eyes off the power of God, got it under the power of the devil, and they just in their hearts probably thought there's no way we can... This is the worst case of demonic possession we've ever seen. And that's the problem oftentimes. See, that creates unbelief. In the sense that we get our eyes off the power of our God onto the power of the devil. Whether it be, we'll say you're, you're wrestling with maybe uh, a drug addiction, alcohol, pornography, homosexuality, something like that. And God has promised you victory and yet this thing has got such a hold on you. I mean it's become such an ugly thing that you just fear because you just can't break free of it. That you lose all sight in, of God's strength. And you become defeated because it seems the devil's stronghold is just too strong. I think of the children of Israel going up against Jericho. They didn't look at the size of the enemy's stronghold. They looked at the power of their God. They did as God commanded and God gave them victory. If David, when he stood before, 16-year-old kid stood before a nine-and-a-half-foot Philistine giant, if he would have looked at the size of the enemy, he never would have had faith enough to take the enemy on. Here comes this giant. A warrior of warriors with a big drawn sword ready to take David's head off. And Goliath mocks David and says, Come to me, little boy, and I'll feed you to the birds. And what did David say? Oh, he's big. I, I can't know. There's no way. David said, Look, big guy, you come to me with sword and spirit, but I come to you in the name of the living God, and it is he who will deliver you into my hand. David kept his eye on the power of his God. We have to do the same. So Jesus gives to them, and the second thing, by the way, was looking at the power of the devil. And you know what? I'm wondering if part of the problem was what Jesus took Peter, James, and John up to the mountain, and they were up there for at least a night. Because it's the next day when they came down, right? I'm wondering if the guys, the nine guys at the base of the mountain were thinking, why do they always have to get to go, you know? How come they always get to go with Jesus, you know? I don't think it's fair. You know, maybe they were murmuring and complaining and feeling sorry for themselves. That sucks a lot of spiritual vitality out of us too, right? That's a little observation. I'm not sure it happened, but knowing human nature, I wouldn't doubt it, right? But, but here Jesus, in response to the disciples' question, why couldn't we cast the demon out? He gives a couple of powerful principles for having victory over the devil's influence and power in our lives. 
First of all, he talks about the need for genuine faith. And secondly, the power of fasting coupled with prayer. Quickly, the, the, the power of genuine faith, verse 20. Jesus said to them, You couldn't cast them out basically because of your unbelief. For assuredly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. Now, let me just stop there and say this, all right? Was Jesus talking literally here? Well, I'm not saying God can't literally move mountains. But I'm not so sure we'd ever have a situation where we needed to move a mountain literally. It's probably more um, accurate, and this is something that scholars have brought out, that the rabbis used to use this phrase, moving mountains, to describe or as a way of saying solving problems. Problems that were so big, they went beyond our abilities. And now God is the only one who can solve problems, move mountains, whatever they might be, uh, and solve the problems that you're facing that are too big for you and me. And that's probably what the Lord had in mind here, okay? Not that he was talking about moving literal mountains, although I don't doubt God could do it for sure. But in a similar passage in Mark's gospel, Jesus said in Mark 11, starting in verse 22, he said, uh, Jesus answered and said to them, have faith in God. For assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain be removed and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Maybe you've heard someone say, I know I have, it's not important what you believe, only that you believe something. You know what? That's ridiculous. Of course it's important what you believe. The Bible says what you believe or who you believe in will affect where you're going to spend eternity. You can believe a lie with all your heart. It won't save you. I don't think anyone in this room doubts the sincerity and the faith of these young Muslim guys who have been taught if they blow themselves up in jihad, they're going to awake to 70 virgins, right? And when they do it, none of us doubts that they were sincere, that they really believed what they claim to believe. It's just that we know that they believed a lie. And it didn't save them, can't save them. You know, in the positive confession movement, there's a popular teaching that says, have faith in your faith. Have faith in your faith. Why do they say that? Well, because they believe that faith is a force. And that this force called faith functions according to certain laws, like electricity. And if anyone learns the laws of faith, if anyone learns how to manipulate this force called faith through these various laws, and speaking the spoken word is one of them, okay, well, then you can tap into this force, direct it at God, basically, and as one leader said, write your own ticket with God. Which is basically another way of saying, if you learn how to unlock the secrets of this force called faith, you can direct it at God, and God becomes your servant, you become his master, and you can basically get from God anything you want. They wouldn't put it that way, but that's basically what they're saying. But having faith in your faith is not only absurd, it's unbiblical. Because faith, guys, listen, only finds meaning in the object it's attached to. That's why Jesus said in Mark 11:22, have faith in what? In God. Not have faith in your faith. Have faith in God. And also why he said in Matthew 17, verse 20, he said to his disciples, for assuredly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, 
You will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. I don't know if you've ever had a chance to look at a mustard seed. Uh, Cindy and I were, uh, I think, at Long Grove years ago. If you've ever been to Long Grove, they have shops and things, and they had a, a kitchen shop we went into, and, and she was looking at pots and pans or something. I was browsing around and saw uh, a shelf that had uh, jars of various uh, you know, uh, herbs and spices, and, and there, was a, there was a little bottle that had mustard seeds on it. And so I looked, picked it up and looked, and sure enough, those rascals are pretty tiny. They're very, very small, right? And I started thinking, well, if Jesus said, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, he wasn't talking about the size of your faith, obviously. He was talking about the object of your faith. He was saying, look, it doesn't require a lot of faith to work miracles because the miracles are not yours to do, it's God's. So if you have genuine faith, even a small amount, God can use it. And God can do the impossible to any servant who has faith, not in their faith, but in him. Because again, faith only finds meaning with regard to the object it's attached to, and then only then if the object is God himself. And I know some people at this point would say, yes, but what about the woman who was hemorrhaging? Was it uh, 12 years? And she said, if I can only touch the hem of Jesus' robe, I will be healed. And she reached out and touched it uh, as the crowd was thronging him. And immediately she was healed, and Jesus turned to her and said, Woman, your faith has made you well. And they said, Well, see, does not prove that faith, our faith heals us. No, you have to understand something. Jesus wasn't saying that her faith was like some kind of cosmic mind power that she directed at Jesus. He was saying that her faith in God became a conduit for the power of God to flow from God into her life, into her body to heal her, but only because God willed that she be healed. She certainly wasn't writing her own ticket with God. She certainly wasn't playing God. She certainly wasn't the master and God was her servant. Because John said in his first epistle, this is the confidence that we have in him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, then whatever we ask, we know, we know that we shall have the things that we have asked of him. The idea is that, look, faith is important, but faith does not put me in the driver's seat no matter, no matter how much faith I have. And would you want it any other way? Good heavens, if we could muster up enough faith that we could do anything, what kind of world would that be? Okay. Do you realize the will of some imposed on others, the havoc that would be played in the lives of others because we're directing this force called faith at other people and, you know, it would be horrendous. Look, God is in control. God is sovereign. He uses our faith as a conduit to bring his will to the earth. That's what prayer is all about. Father, you know, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy will be done on earth even as it is in heaven. Faith and prayer is all about, about asking God to allow us to be a channel through which he can bring his will to the earth. He doesn't need us. If we don't pray, he still does what he wants. But he allows us the privilege of partnering with him in the work he wants to do. It was Oswald Chambers who said faith, true faith, biblical faith. Never knows where it is being led, where it is being led, but it loves and knows the one who is leading. In other words, true faith trusts God. It doesn't seek to control God, it seeks to be controlled by God. Because he knows the best. His ways are the best. I just need to trust in him. So we see the first principle he says here and or gives in Matthew seventeen, the power of genuine faith, and then secondly and quickly, the power of fasting coupled with prayer. Verse twenty one 
Whoever Jesus said this kind, this kind of demon does not go out except by prayer and fasting, indicating that there are different kinds of demons, some more vicious, some more strong than others. And there are times when we just need to pray against whatever the devil is trying to do. But sometimes we're up against a demonic stronghold or entity. You need to bring out the big guns. And prayer coupled with fasting, that's the big guns. You can pray without fasting, but you never fast without praying. Because that's what it's all about. Fasting coupled with prayer. Now, I personally, I could be wrong. I personally don't think that fasting is practiced much anymore today in the Western church. We'll just say America. I think most Christians in this country see fasting as almost kind of a medieval, monastic practice. Uh, Some may even feel it has its roots in fanaticism. But certainly we don't need to fast today. But that simply isn't true. I challenge you to read, again, the Old and New Testaments. Because in both the Old and New Testaments, God's people have always fasted and prayed. And all throughout the church age, by the way. One Christian author said, Every great leader who moved his age mightily for God fasted. And yet some would say to the yes, but is it really necessary? Is it really something God wants me to do? Well, I won't have you turn there, but in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus Christ is giving out some instruction to his disciples. You remember when he said in chapter 6, he says, first of all, he says, when you do a charitable deed, don't sound the trumpet like the hypocrites, okay? Because uh, the Pharisees did this, and they would do a deed, and they'd make everyone know it, and so on and so forth. He goes, don't do that. He said, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who stay on the street corners to be seen by men. Don't do that. When you fast, all right, don't make your face all contorted and like you're in such pain letting people know you're fasting. Don't do that. But I don't want you to notice what he said here. He said, when you help the poor, when you pray, when you fast. When, not if. We would agree that helping the poor and praying are things that Christians should be involved in today. But when it comes to fasting, all of a sudden now, a lot of Christians say, well, no, that was for prophets and apostles, but not for me. And here Jesus is saying, uh, is implying that it just it should be a, a normal part of our spiritual disciplines. As we pray, and as we help the poor, that we fast as well. Jesus lumped them all together. Quickly, okay, because we have done series on fasting that you can get if you want to dig into the subject deeper. But today, fasting is being defined as giving up anything for a time as a way of drawing closer to God. Now, I'm not against that. Okay, I've heard people say, well, I'm giving up TV for a while to spend the time with God. Hey, that's great. That, that's wonderful. All right. I've heard some people say I'm giving up chocolate. I'm thinking, well, how much chocolate do you consume <laughs> that by giving that up, that would help you to, you know, some people, I'm giving up Starbucks. Well, that's great. What I mean, okay, fine. You know, others say I'm giving up my favorite hobby. I, I'm not going playing golf for, for a month because I'm going to use that time to study God's word and to get close to him. Hey, that's great. I'm not putting on any of that. But if you want to get tactical, the word fast means to give up eating. Okay? That, that's the bottom line. Okay? You see, when you fast, you're denying the physical, and that strengthens our spiritual man. Godly Samuel Bringle put it this way. He said, A man should not deny himself food and drink, to the injury of his body, but spiritual fast conducted on Bible lines will bless soul and body when not done to extremes. I like the balance. 
Any Christian who is willing to forget his body and systematically fast and pray in the interest of his own soul and the souls of others will reap blessings which will amaze himself and all who know him, end quote. Why is it so important that we fast and we pray sometimes? Because we are locked in a battle with the enemy who is trying to destroy our walk and neutralize our effectiveness for God. Let me read to you something I've read to you before. It's by Arthur Wallace. Uh, comes out of his book, God's Chosen Fast. Great little book on fasting. He made this observation, and I quote. He said, In these days when the Spirit of God is moving and the power of God is being released, evil forces that have lain dormant in human breasts for years are being compelled to throw off their camouflage and manifest themselves for what they are. And folks, if we're not seeing that in these last days, I don't know what. What, what we're going to see in the future. It just seems like the occult has become mainstream. And people are wearing their involvement in the occult as a badge of honor. Occult means secret things. It's not secret anymore. It used to be secret. Now it's public. The discerning eye can recognize that many whom we meet in the path of life are oppressed by the devil, vexed by demons, bound by forces that they do not understand and from which they cannot break free. In many cases, they loathe themselves for their actions, weep with sheer frustration at their own impotence to break the chains, and pray as best they know how for deliverance. An increasingly large proportion of the younger generation are hopelessly bound by nicotine, alcohol, drugs, sexual desire, and gambling fever. Others are deceived and entangled by satanically inspired cults and societies, and by various forms of black magic, witchcraft, and spiritism. Worse still, there are Christians bound by fear, resentment, jealousy, and uncleanness who know full well that they are in, in themselves a complete contradiction to the liberating gospel they profess. But how to get free? They try hard to pray, to believe, to claim, yet still they are bound. And Wallace goes on to give the solution. He says it's fasting coupled with prayer. Just as Jesus talked about here in Matthew 17, verse 21. As we bring this to a close, let me just say this. I believe one of the reasons the early church was so powerful is because they not only prayed regularly, that was the first step, but they also prayed and fasted often. And God honored that. God honored that, as he has always done. We read how John Wesley tells the story of how Christians in a particular area were dry and lifeless in their walk when a group of leaders called for every Friday to be set aside for fasting and prayer. Wesley said almost immediately God began to pour out his power and blessing upon them and a great revival broke out. Look, we're talking about victory over the demonic. And listen, it's not just about the most extreme examples of this, like this boy who was a full-blown possession by the demons. It, uh, it takes many different forms. Again, bondage to alcohol or drugs of any kind, uh, uh, pornography or whatever it might be. So a lot of ways the devil is binding uh, Christians even and uh, diminishing their ability to be effective for the Lord. Let me just close by recapping. You want power for victory. First of all, it comes down to this. There's only power in the name of Jesus, and you only use that power if you have made him your Lord and Savior. Are you a Christian? That's basic, but that's where it starts, okay? There is no victory over alcohol, drugs, pornography, homosexuality, or whatever it might be, 
outside of the name of Jesus Christ who has given that authority to have victory to those who belong to him. Are you a Christian? Because if you are here this morning and you're feeling like I have been in bondage so long to this thing, if I don't get deliverance soon, I'm going to kill myself. Well, that's exactly where the devil wants you. But it's also where God wants you. Because you're at a place where one of two things can happen. You can become so depressed, so defeated, that you wind up taking your own life, which is what the devil wants. He has come to steal, kill, and destroy. Or you can come to the end of yourself, the end of your power, and then you can say, God, I need you. Lord Jesus, you're my only hope. Just like this father with his son. And you can receive Christ and know that the power that he gives is unlimited and will break every chain, open every prison door, smash every stronghold of the devil, but only in his name. And then secondly, when you get saved, then you begin to live a holy life for him right away. Complete break with the old life. Not Jesus and the world. It's Jesus or the world. And we have to understand that. Because there is nothing more awesome than a holy instrument in the hands of a holy God. So often people get saved, but they don't really want to make a full break. And Jesus said, look, no man who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is worthy of the kingdom. You can't serve two masters. You've got to make, as Joshua said, choose today who you're going to serve. The gods of this world or the Lord God Almighty. But as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. You've got to purge your life of the carnality. And whatever evil that might, you know, still be there. You've got to embrace genuine faith. Genuine faith. Genuine faith is not a mind power that we direct at God and get what we want from God. Genuine faith says, Lord, I trust you. Here's what I want. But if you choose not to give it, then Lord, I know you have something better. And I will rejoice in your will. I won't kick and scream and throw a little tantrum because I didn't get what I wanted, so you're not a good God. You don't love me. That kind of thing. That's, that's what two-year-olds do. As Christians, we need to grow up and recognize that, you know what, we lived enough of our life doing our own thing, going our own way. The Christian life is all about giving up control to God who then takes over. And sometimes He doesn't lead me exactly where I want to go. He will lead me in the right path, not always the easiest paths, or the most likable paths, by the way. But I trust Him. That's what faith is all about, trusting God no matter what. Number four, then you pray. And you fast at times because sometimes you're up against a stronghold or a demonic entity, whether it be in your own life or a wayward child or an unbelieving spouse or something. And you need to fast and pray. And get some of your Christian friends, brothers and sisters in Christ together, and we will fast and pray with you. And finally, God's Word. It's all built on God's Word. You won't be able to have faith in having victory if you don't know what God has promised you in Christ. That's why it's so important to know what God has said. Because everything we believe about God, we get from His Word. And therefore, we need to know what God's Word says if we're going to draw on the resources and the promises He has given to us for victory. These things are not deep. They're very simple. But I have found that as Christians, we often stumble over the simple because we're just not doing it. And God wants us to understand, look, I've given to you everything you need for life and godliness. It all comes through your relationship with my son, power of the spirit, and your knowledge of my word. Now go do it. Go do it. And know that God has given you victory. 
the devil, he's going to make you think you're not free. But Jesus Christ has truly set you free. And if the Son has made you free, you are free in what? Indeed. Indeed. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for your word, Lord, because your word tells us what you have given to those who belong to you in the way of power and promises. We know it's all through our Lord Jesus Christ, Father. He did all the work. Only He could have vanquished principalities and powers and, uh, and bound the power of the devil. And now, Lord, we need to walk in His victory, not ours. Give us grace, Lord, to believe what You have said. And, Lord, that we would be holy instruments in Your hands. That against Your church, the gates of hell will not prevail as You promised. And that, Lord, You will smash every stronghold in our life. And in the lives of our loved ones, Lord, if we pray and seek you and even fast. Father, victory over the demonic is not uh, something that is a wishful thought. It's a absolute reality if we will do and believe what you have taught us to do. We thank you, Lord. And Father, we pray right now if anybody in this room is in bondage to the devil in any area. Father, in Jesus' name, we ask you to break the chains. Uh, open the, 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 the prison doors. Set them free, Lord. And if they're unbelievers, that means set them free by bringing them to Jesus. And if they know you, Lord, then Father, give them grace to walk in that newness of life that is only ours in Christ. Father, we thank you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.